0: Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. To let me know what you think of this podcast, or to suggest a future guest, please go to the contact page at nathanwhitlock.ca. Before I introduce my guest, I wanted to let you know that I have a book that is not just newish, it's actually brand new. It's a novel called Lump, and it's published by the Rare Machines imprint at Dundurn Press. It's my third novel, I've read it, and it's good. You can find out more about Lump at nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Claire Ross Dunn. Claire is not only a novelist whose first book, At Last Count, was published in 2022 by Invisible Publishing, but also a story editor and producer for television, where she has written movies, including one that is in the running for best title of all time, Ice Wine Christmas, and has worked on obscure little shows like Little Mosque on the Prairie and Degrassi The Next Generation. The Globe and Mail named At Last Count as one of its best books of 2022. Claire and I talk about how she felt like a complete newbie, shifting from the film and TV world to that of books, how she discovered many of the skills she learned in the former were transferable to the latter, and how an early success at getting Devo to play her high school pretty much set the pattern for her entire creative career. One small disclosure, Claire and I are not only friends, but I played a minor role in the long creative journey that led to her first novel. So be prepared for even more insidery stuff than usual on this episode. I want to talk to you about book stuff, of course. We're We're going to talk about a lot of book stuff. But I wanted to ask you about something possibly even more important first, which is something I read about a campaign that you spearheaded as a teenager to get Devo to play your high school. I need to know about this. Please give me the details.
1: Nathan, you have done your research (laughs) and this is true. So I went to a very small school called the Toronto French school. I basically graduated with the same 26 kids who started JK with me. Wow. And there was very, I know it was very, very nerdy, all that kind of stuff. Um, But Uh, there was very little kind of school spirit stuff that happened because it's hard to get up school spirit when, you know, the whole school is like 215 kids or whatever. Um, But these were the days of CFNY. Do you remember CFNY? Yeah. yeah. And, um, and yeah, so Devo came through town and CFNY had this awesome, you know, write in from your school and Devo will do a school concert. The size of our gym was like the size of a postage stamp. So I was, but I, you know, thought to myself, oh my God, wouldn't it be great to have Devo in this tiny gym, in this nerdy school, awesome school, but nerdy school. And so we started a letter writing campaign and I would show up at 7 a.m. every morning and, and ask the school secretary to photocopy the, the thing that had three sort of ballots on it, each page. And every morning a bunch of us would get together and we would sign all of these ballots and we got garbage bags and garbage bags of the ballots together. We sent them in. We won like against all odds. And because I guess they sent somebody to come and look at the gym, they were like, Nope, this is too small. So we had it in a warehouse somewhere downtown with low cement (laughs) ceilings and fluorescent lights, and it was basically the most awesome thing ever. And yes, they did wear their red hats. And I have never forgotten.
0: Were you a diehard Devo? Fan? Like, were you, I know you are big on 80s music. Was Devo totally. one of your big ones? One of the big ones? I
1: mean, big-ish, big enough. And if Devo is listening, they were my top band. <laughs> it's basically the coolest thing in my history. I, I, I would be hard-pressed to find something quite as cool.
0: It actually speaks to something. And watch how I make this transition.
1: I'm I'm waiting with bated breath.
0: It does speak to your... Tenaciousness and your ability to organize a campaign like that around marketing, around uh, bringing, getting the word out, bringing people together, which is something I feel like you've done with with your novel, with that last count. Where does that come from? Where does that ability come from?
1: First of all, very good bridge in conversation.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Um,
1: yeah. So that's an interesting thing. Two things about that. One is that I started out as an actor. Um, Back in the 80s, I went to theater school and then spent a decade as an actor. And instead of catering or waitering or bartending like all of my friends, I became a freelance publicist and marketing officer for arts organizations like the National Film Board, TIFF. At the time, it was called the Festival of Festivals, a bit of a mouthful, Uh, the ROM, CBC even. Um, and I would do these short-term contracts. And in a way, uh, I will say, sidebar, that that's where I learned how to write. I think that that's the truth. A publicists taking my press releases and redlining them. Right. Um, you know, getting me to, and the the ability to write something succinct, like a one-pager about anything, really, and keep it onto one page. So I suppose the truth is that I have some marketing uh, background, except that that was a very long time ago, and marketing was a very different back then. Like I so remember the days of standing at the CBC receptionist desk next to the giant fax machine that was almost the size of a photocopier, and feeding in <laughs> press releases one at a time, and getting you know people's phone numbers. The phone numbers on a paper list of the guy at the Toronto Star and the woman at the Globe and Mail, et cetera. So, I mean, i I have to say that I went right back to those those old ideas of like, how do you how do you get the word out about something? How do you stick out in the crowd? Because the truth was, I was terrified I wouldn't, right. Um, here I am in this weird space of being a complete beginner novelist because it's my first novel and also being a person who's written for film and TV for 25, 30 years. Um, so I really didn't know how to get the word out. And I was terrified that the book would be a flop. And, um and I was with a small, but utterly delightful, utterly smart, utterly cool, as cool as organizing a Devo concert, let's say, <laughs> publisher, um, Invisible. And I knew that they didn't, you know, they've got a small staff, awesome staff, but small, right? So I knew that there was going to be, um, it was going to be important for me to pitch in and to figure out how to carve out my own space and whatnot. So I guess it's the combination of that, the, those old marketing kind of skills coming back. And then also terror, which is a great motivator, really. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's something I've spoken about. On this podcast before, and and some of the authors have spoken about is this reality that authors can't simply write the book, revise the book, go to a launch, and then
1: start writing va- the next vanish. book.
0: Yeah, move yeah. Go, vanish to the log cabin and wait for the wait the for the, the yeah the Giller jury to to right. contact them. Uh, you know, have the phone call down at the general store and have someone come totally. up totally. Contact them. as
1: delicious as that image is to me
0: yeah and it's something I spoke I specifically I remember speaking to uh for doctor about this About I have this theory that writers need to be part artist and part weasel and she used the word entrepreneur which I quite preferred it's <laughs> much
1: right I prefer to
0: yeah and you everyone has a different balance of how much they have of each in them and they shouldn't mm-hmm. talk to each other but there is this necessity that you can't just be a pure artist anymore except when you're writing you write but then mm-hmm. once the writing is done and the book is in book form and the covers on it then the weasel has to take over sorry the entrepreneur uh, very has good. to take over and make sure that book gets into some hands
1: true yeah. And I, and I, you know, even though I say I started as an actor and spent those 10 years as an actor, I actually feel that I'm a large part of me as an introvert, you know, and so, and, and in fact, not, uh, writing a book channels the introvert, right? Because you spend all that time by yourself and it, it, it is a true challenge to get up there and do a reading, do an author pop in at a bookstore You know, you put your smile on and you open the door and you're like, hey, I'm here Um, and just get sort of get your extrovert on um, and 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 be brave and and uh, confident that they are happy to see you, that you are part of the way they sell books. So they need authors to be doing that service for the book, for the bookstore For the publisher, I mean, in a way, the only way that I could get my brain around it, because it does feel a lot like tooting your own horn, which is deeply uncomfortable, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert or whatever. Um, The only way I could sort of parcel it was sort of uh, to feel like I was doing it for other people. I was Mm -hmm. doing it for the book. I was doing it for the bookstore. I was doing it for the publisher. And those three things really got me through and and to be honest I hope this doesn't come off as sounding lofty or anything but um it because my book is partly uh is completely fictional but also is about my own experience with OCD as a younger person the other helpful thing is to think about doing it for other for the reader um I I, it's been incredibly rewarding to have conversations with readers um about their OCD experience and how thankful they are that there is another book out there because there aren't that many, um, about the OCD experience. And, um, and so that has been very helpful for me to kind of get out of my head about it and, and get over the embarrassment of self-promotion, which is so challenging and on so many levels, right. And just go, actually this This is a super important conversation. This is exactly why I'm here. And so if I go to this author event and I only meet one person who comes to me and whispers at the front of the signing line, which has happened to me a few times, uh, your book spoke to me. uh, It reflected my experience. Then I feel like, okay, I've got enough courage to keep, keep doing it.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's wonderful. And, and I want to talk about the book for a bit. Um, you've written about that, about the novels, uh, uh, long sort of gestation period. (laughs) Yes.
1: Ridiculously long gestation. (laughs)
0: Um, which, which involves some dormancy as well. Can you talk a little bit about that, about that process?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I started, I think I started writing the book in around 2004, 2005. Um, and as we said, I, I write primarily for television and film, and it can be a very stressful business. And so I started a small writer's circle with two friends, really as an antidote to that stress, uh, so that I would have one thing in my life where writing was purely for pleasure it was not you know it's for gentle feedback amongst this circle right in this circle but it would not be for the lineup of producers and development people and broadcasters and distributors and all the people who have feedback in television under great um time pressure and money pressure and all that kind of stuff
0: which probably it's, felt almost pastoral compared to oh, your day job felt that like is idyllic
1: awesome idyllic it was idyllic we sat in sunbeams quite literally <laughs> And fed each other nice snacks and wrote together and then fed back to each other it was it was just delightful and we challenged each other to submit to the Toronto Arts Council um I basically I was writing a short story it was not at all what the book ended up being it was it was an ode to Britnell's do you remember Britnell's
0: mm-hmm.
1: at uh, Young and Bloor um and I submitted it to the Toronto Arts Council as if I were going to write a novel and I got the money. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Okay, that's delightful. Because really, again, I was this newbie fiction writer. Um, writing for television was feeling a lot like kind of running the 400 meter. And and the notion of writing a novel felt more like the Boston Marathon. And I, I <laughs> still could not wrap my mind my mind around what that would be like. But, you know, that has always felt so fancy to me, the notion of writing a novel. And so I was like, okay, this sounds fun. So we encouraged each other to submit to the Ontario Arts Council, and I got that money too. And then I was like, oh, God, now apparently I have to write a novel. I don't know how to do that. I literally don't know how to do that. So I submitted to the Humber School for Writers in around 2006, I think, late 2005, 2006, And basically, I wrote the info at Humber uh, email, right? So thinking I would get a receptionist or an assistant or something. And I said, I have this dilemma. I know how to write, but not for books. I got this money. I I need some help. Um, Could I sign up? And I got back an email from the head of the program (laughs) who was monitoring it in the off season, Antanas. And he said, um, "You're past the deadline. What are you doing? No, we—I've assigned all the editors, you know, mentors. You're past. You're past the deadline." And, and then I wrote him back and said, "I'm—I'm I'm embarrassed. I, I didn't really look at the deadline. I'm so sorry. Um, but you know, if—if if, uh, thank you anyway for your help." And he said, "Okay, send me 20 pages. I'll see if I like the writing." So <laughs> I was like. Had a heart attack, minor heart attack on my side of the email, and I sent it off to him. And then he wrote back and he said, "Okay, I like this writing. I'll I'll take you on myself." So then I had a second heart attack because now it was my mentor was going to be the head of the program. Anyway, I did a round with Antanas. That's where I cracked the first draft. Then I um I was working on Little Mosque on the Prairie at the same at the same time or like, you know, after that first round of Humber, I worked on a season of Little Mosque. And then I felt like the book wasn't cracked yet. So I signed back up to Humber School for Writers. I did a second round. Then I finished that, still felt the book wasn't finished. Then I hired a wonderful freelance editor uh, called Nathan Whitlock. And uh, Nathan, you may know him, said you should restructure the book. And I was pretty grumpy about that for a week. And then I took his advice. And I restructured the book. And then I think it was probably around 2011 or 2012 where we decided, okay, I should submit to publishers. And I submitted to three and felt extreme terror at submitting and thought, that's so weird because I uh, do a lot of pitching, producers and broadcasters and whatnot. I, I, I don't understand where all this fear is coming from all three were very lovely, read the book, said it was a good book, but it wasn't for them for whatever reason. And I um, was intensely relieved. And it was right around that time that I realized ridiculously that I was writing a book about my own OCD experience, as opposed to a completely fictional book, which it is too. So it's that weird thing of, I had created a fictional story, thought I was just telling a fictional story about a somewhat anxious protagonist, (laughs) turned out that protagonist was me. But anyway, um, and so I shoved the the manuscript in a drawer for seven years after that, and was quite relieved and sort of thought it was a lark. And, you know, uh, I was still earning my living as a television writer. And so there was no pressure to do anything with it. Um, And I was, uh, you know, honestly, happy not to out myself, which was the biggest concern, because I'm freelance. And, you know, we get worried about not getting hired people will think you're weird or you won't be easy to work with in a story room or whatever and um and and they stop hiring you and i was worried about kind of sabotaging my own career and also having to tell people about me and ocd and like i'm mostly recovered now but it was a pretty intense terrible time
0: is that is that still a concern in in the um, you know film and tv world even now when the conversation around mental health has evolved somewhat, is that still, is there still a stigma around that kind of well, thing? Like, well, that person's I a think, little off. So do we, yeah, work? yeah.
1: I mean, I think yes and no, I think, uh, I think you're really right that um, the conversation around mental health is so much deeper now. It's not a conversation that was happening at all 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Um So I think people are much more open to that. At the same time, being in a writer's room under that amount of pressure is a very delicate thing. And um, people are prone to just hiring the people there they know very well instead of taking risk on somebody new because the pressure is so high. And so I didn't want to break anything that was fragile. Do you know what I mean?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And also, honestly, like my parents didn't know.
0: Oh, okay. Right? This was, so that was, a real, was a, a, real a real coming out. It would represent a real coming out.
1: I would think that there were maybe four or five people max who knew that I had struggled, my husband, of course, but my closest friends and, and whatnot. So it just sat there, unfortunately, and I did myself, you know, upon reflection, Insights 2020, but I did myself a real disservice. But I don't know, maybe these things happen for a reason. And because it seems like the book came out at exactly the right time, in a in, t- looked at in a different way. Um, but basically, what happened was, you know, twenty twenty arrived, COVID. I did what everybody else did, which was stand out on my porch and see nobody in the street. This was like pre-vaccine, pre getting our act together in any way and feeling like you might catch it and get into hospital and never come out kind of deal. And I thought, mm-hmm. what should I be doing with this moment? You know, something important. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll pull out the book. Canada Council came out with a digital retrofit grant, $5,000 flat for any kind of artist to digitally pivot a project. And I thought, I'll make an audio book of the book, which is something I could do for $5,000. And um, and so I submitted, and then thought I will get a completely uh, I'll get an editor to kind of kick the tires on it, do just a um, you know a copy edit, and to make it sure that it makes sense for actors. And um, so I hired Alex Schultz, who you know to, to have a completely fresh kind of point of view on the book. He was wonderful, wonderful. Oh my goodness! And he got halfway through the book uh and and called me and said I love this book and I would like to introduce you to a publisher so he was the one who introduced me to invisible which is like the kindest most lovely thing that anybody's ever done that's I didn't amazing have to, I didn't have to write a query letter I didn't have to do anything um and by the way I did not get the Canada Council grant <laughs> <laughs> after all that but I did get a proper book out of it which was
0: absolutely incredible well, there's a great contrast there, too, with uh, you've hired, you hired two editors, one told you to completely rework it, <laughs> and it had ended up in a drawer. Yet the other one said, I, I adore this, I'm going to introduce you to a publisher, and now you have a real book, and you're a published novelist. I can't, uh, can't quite parse that, but there's a difference well, there somewhere. I there will, was a slight will, difference in approach.
1: True, except that I will say that when I started with Invisible, the publisher was Lee Ash, the wonderful Lee mm-hmm. Ash. And she said, I told her the whole story I've just told you. And she said that, Nathan, he's quite smart, eh? (laughs) Um, I think what we should do is go deeper into the structure. And you should do the, so so the book, uh, Intercuts Between Now and Then, that is Mm -hmm. the structure that you had proposed. Originally, it was just a linear retelling from the point of view of the 39-year-old protagonist. And you had proposed, let's intercut these two time periods. Let's tell it from the point of view of the 39-year-old and the 13-year-old, which ended up being so wonderful. And Lee said, go more. And so that really, I, you know, the chapters are incredibly short, sometimes a page, sometimes three pages. And and that has been a winning thing. Like lots of readers have told me that they felt, the book whipped by like they got themselves into a hammock and read the whole thing in a day and a half because they couldn't they couldn't stop turning the pages so
0: it's an undervalued thing though that readability like basic readability um the idea that you're not forcing yourself to like I've got to keep reading this because I know this is important right it has won an award <laughs> right. I've been told by so many big heads that this is an important book but man, is this slow going and strategy right. and not yeah, yeah. really doing I'm, the old I'm, 57
1: yeah. more pages till the end of this <laughs> exactly. chapter? Oh my God.
0: Yeah. Something I'm taking from that whole story, which is great. And it's got that great TV ending. It's got that great movie <laughs> ending, which well done. But something that's that's clear from that is even connecting back to the, you know, the 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 Devo campaign and the marketing work you've done for your own book. You seem to have this approach of, okay, something needs to happen. I need to make a plan, assemble a team, hire the right people, do some research on funding, do some research on the right, you know, resources, and we'll get this done. Boom, 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 boom. Right. As opposed to this, the more cliched creative writer approach, which is like, uh, I will now get into the fetal position and I will hate myself and then i will hope that some you know brilliant Lots editor sees light, yes. yeah or someone you know angel comes and spots my potential and draws me into the you know into the the better realm you seem to have that approach with everything of like mm-hmm. no let's get this project everything's a project in other words
1: true true oh just ask my husband <laughs> yes i think he, i think he would agree with you on that
0: it's interesting though because you mentioned you have this whole career you began as an as an actor and as a writer for for television and for film so you were in a very demanding creative industry Mm -hmm. and yet when it came to putting this book out you felt like a complete babe in the woods a complete novice and in fact again I can I can speak out of school again uh, here a little bit I remember you getting in touch before your book launch and oh, asking yes. for some asking for some practical advice on the level of should I do a reading? And is it okay to publicly invite, like post the invite publicly because I don't want to overload the patio. Right. And I remember for that latter bit, I said, You want it packed, you want a lineup, like you absolutely want to overfill that venue. Right. Don't be selective. That's not what this is for. And I remember even then thinking, like, it's so odd that you have this whole—you live in this world of sharks, you know, the film, right, and TV world—and right. then you come to the publishing world, and you're like, "What? Do oh I my do? God! What do, so I even, it,
1: what do I even? Where do I begin?"
0: Yeah. So I wonder now that you're in it, now that you've published the book and the book's been out for a year and has had mm-hmm. wonderful success and all kinds of review success and many, many mm-hmm. readers. Are there things where? you recognized it and you were like, oh, it's not quite as mysterious as I thought. I know this from my other industry. Or was it more a case of, yeah, this is a whole other world. I'm, I'm in Lilliput now. Like this, these are <laughs> kinder, gentler people. And I know, and I, and I'm learning their language.
1: Well, I would definitely say they are kinder, gentler people. <laughs> okay. That's at least in my experience. Um, I think everybody who's in the book Industry uh understands the kind of heavy lifting that everybody is doing. Um, you know, just the teams are bigger in film and TV, right? Like to to step out onto the set of a TV show and there are 50 or 70 people there and they each have each have their defined roles and they're each all together they're making this thing. And that's not even post. You 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 shoot it, and then there's another. Thirty people posting a, a show, um, but in film and t- in 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 the book world, there might be four of you, <laughs> you know. Um, but it does still feel um, new to me, and I, I don't know if that's just naivete or um, or whatnot. Like it's only looking back over the last year that I realize. Nope, there's a pattern there. Um, and I did a lot of Googling, like the very basic novice stuff. Googling, how do I promote my book?
0: Google. Right, right.
1: Um, how do I run a book launch? How do I get a blurb? How do you what does an email look like when you ask somebody for a blurb? Google, <laughs> um, like just the very, very basic thing. I could not really see the forest for the trees do you know what I mean I could not see the the mile high version of what I was supposed to do so I kept making lists over and over and over um and and trying to go to these essentially how to do the book industry websites so that I could get an idea and then I would immediately ask people like you what what do you think about this should I do this and the answer was always so forthcoming everybody's so helpful with their with their support so just like it took me a long time to figure out the very sort of base coat of book promotion like I needed an author website well I had successfully avoided making an author website for years and years and years because I didn't really need one um it because in a way in television like I have never I'm I'm not the Aaron Sorkin not yet but I have not there is time there's there's plenty of time time. thank you very much um but I have not had my own shows uh like I've had my own shows optioned and developed but I have not had a an uh one of my own shows greenlit so I've never been the front person on a on a show um I am Often now, you know, later in my career, than what's called the number two. So I will help run the writing department for an absentee showrunner or somebody who's had to move on to another gig. But um, I haven't had to be the front person, so I never needed an author website. Well, now I did. So now I had to find somebody because I am not technically inclined. I had to find somebody who could make a Squarespace website, and then you know, then you have to go looking for blurbs. And that's a whole thing, and I don't know many people in the book industry. And so where do you even begin? Who do you ask? how do you how do you ask? It seems like a big favor. Will they say, will they even respond to you? <laughs> I'll tell you <laughs> that my kid, who's twenty five now, said to me, "Um, oh, I think you should ask John Green for a blurb for the back of your book. And I said, Oh, who's John Green? (laughs) And they said, uh, well, have you heard of this little movie, uh, the fault in our stars? I said, Oh yes, I have. I think I've seen that. Yes. That was, you know, one of his first books and he wrote turtles all the way down. And um, the reason my kid was suggesting John Green was because he has struggled with OCD and he's talked about it. And so I said, Oh, that's a great idea. And so I went looking at, I, you know, Googled John Green later that night and saw that he had sold 50 million books. And I was like, "Mm, I I don't know if I should reach out to this person for a blurb. But trying my dutiful best, off I go. I Google again. How do you ask a famous person for a blurb? Well, you approach their publicist. And so I did. Crickets. So I was like, okay, I think I need to adjust my expectations here a bit. Right. So yeah, all of those things were complete new experiences for me. But I will say that um, approaching things with a beginner's mind seemed to let me off the hook from feeling like an utter fool. I was just like, nope, I'm going to be, since this whole experience is about me being out, as it were, I am also going to be out about publishing my first book and not knowing how to do any of this. And I just found that when I repeatedly mentioned to people how new I was, they were lovely, and gave me advice and and helped me through.
0: It's interesting though because there's still that odd uh, thing that happens. And I remember you. I remember the email from you about asking about blurbs and the, that whole process. And I gave you what I thought was you know the 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 advice from the entrepreneur slash weasel side, which is because <laughs> you had suggested some names, and I was like, those are great people but they're all very literary people, literary, they're all authors. So yes, absolutely hit those people up. But one thing that booksellers, readers, editors like to see are people from outside the book world or experts, you know, beyond just other writers. So I said, why don't you connect with this person, that person, these, some ideas. And your reply was, Oh, I've already got those. That's already, (laughs) you already (laughs) had like two or three. I'm like, yeah, those are a million times better than I could have gotten. and oh. I and I was even suggesting, like so there was this always this thing of like you coming to it as again, this complete babe in the woods, complete right. novice. But really, you've done the work. You've done all the groundwork. You're like, yeah, that's a great idea. I've already got 10 of those. Thanks. <laughs> like, the project is yeah. already four steps ahead. I just, you know. But well, I love that I advice. give off
1: that impression because mostly I was melting down around here. And oh, I
0: don't I don't suggest that this was a ruse or anything. <laughs> I just I don't think you realize how right. Uh, how accomplished you already were in terms oh. of and how knowledgeable you already were about what was going on.
1: Yeah. And, you know, there is a process. It it is very, there there are natural steps to the thing. Um, I will say that each step took way longer than I anticipated. That was the other thing I would, I would say people should give themselves way longer runway than they think. So even for example, just with the asking blurbs, it occurred to me so belatedly, you can't ask a blurb of somebody if you haven't read their book, that would just be rude. What would my mother think? And so, you know, I then realized, oh my God, I'm like two months from the deadline, the publisher deadline to have my blurbs. So I started buying books like literally every day I was down to Book city buying buying a book and reading, 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 which of course, I'm not a fast reader. It takes time, right? Um it took me time to make the website and gather all the things that you need for the website then you have to go and take a proper author photo and it has to be a certain number of pixels. And is that the right word, pixels? You know what I'm saying? Resolution. Resolution, high res. And so, um, well, I had also successfully avoided doing that. (laughs) And then you have to line that up and then you have to choose them and you have to look at them, which um, I didn't want to do. And anyway, just all of that stuff took a long, long time. You know, the other thing is, there's not a great uh, swath of people organizing a book launch for an author. It's the author. It's Mm -hmm. the author. And so you have to find a venue. Well, during COVID, that was not so easy, right? A venue who had a patio that everybody could get to, that everyone would feel comfortable with, who was willing to book off a night, like all those kinds of logistic-y things. Anyway, it just takes a lot longer than you think. And meanwhile there are all these other things that are happening after the yes from the publisher that I was not aware of either. Right. You, you kind of have this image of like, they, they call you and they say, we'd like to publish your book. And you're like, Oh my goodness. And then you immediately get on a lounger with a cocktail and that's, you know, (laughs)
0: Nope. (laughs) Yeah.
1: There's like a year of, of work after, after that designing the cover and doing a final edit with the publisher and, All those things. So, so there's a lot of admin to juggle um, that I, I had no idea about. And I just tried to Zen into doing one thing, keep, keep going one foot after the other, keep going. And when, when I don't know, I have to immediately press on a friend to ask because I don't have the time to, you know, waffle about.
0: Was there any part of that process that you got frustrated with, with this, with the pace of it? I would imagine, again, coming from a TV and film background where I'm, there's certain things you'll we'll have to wait on, but certain things will be, the decisions will be made in the room. But was there ever a moment you're like, we can speed this process up a little bit. I don't need to wait for the yes or the no for, for six weeks.
1: Right, uh, maybe not. Uh, certainly in terms of the creative side with the publisher, um, I was glad for time, it sped up as we got closer. And I remember the last, the very last read that I had was like 48 hours and I flipped my gourd. I was just like, I can't read 280 pages that fast and have it be good. Um, So it did did all kind of speed up and it caught up Mm -hmm. to me, but I was glad for the longer, time periods um, because I did do a full edit pass with Lee um, and then Norm Nematala came on as the new publisher and he was equally wonderful um, and by then we had basically finished the substantive edit but you know there was like there's now a new person in the mix and, and I want him to have the time and so we kind of flipped uh, changed people and so I, I think that all of that stuff happened at just the right pace, especially for me being a newbie, um, that i didn't that I didn't get overwhelmed.
0: I do also want to ask you, because you have these connections in the film world, and I know that uh, you know that would be a natural thing, and the book lends itself to the screen very nicely. What's happening on that front?
1: I applied to the Canada Media Fund, the CMF. For, they have a fund uh, to develop new properties and, um, to Bible and pilot. And so I got money to develop At Last Count into a TV series, which is deeply exciting. That's for me. excellent. It is excellent. And it's very kind of um, full circle or something like that because, you know, I have made my living as a film and TV writer. And then I took this risk and wrote a book. And then now I'm optioning my own book in a way to write the film and TV version of it. So it's all coming around. Um, but I love the multi-platform version of that. I love, you know, in my fantasy, the the TV show gets made and the TV series helps the book and the book helps the TV series. And so it's it's quite exciting. I'm in the middle of pitching. All of that is written now. Um, and I'm in the middle of pitching producers. and
0: that's some wonderful weasel slash entrepreneur thinking, <laughs> the idea of it all promoting each other. I also have to ask, in the process of making that pitch and going through that that grant uh, um application and now working through the book and rewriting it as a as a series, has your perspective changed on the story? Are you looking at parts of the original book and going like, yeah, I can't use that. That that worked just fine yeah. in the book, but doesn't work on the. Are you able to have that distance? Or... Yes,
1: I, yes. It's such an engaging conversation. Um, so I ran a development, what's called a development story room, uh, and I hired part of the money helped to finance a story editor. So I brought on a a story consultant, and a sort of a junior story person, and the three of us sat in the room and talked about it all and whatnot. So um, it is, you know, TV necessarily is a different medium, right? So you cannot be too faithful to the original material, but you want to honor the things that really work with the original material. So it's still the, the the series has evolved from what the book is in very exciting ways. The other thing that you're trying to do is create an engine, which is a very TV word. That will help the help the um, series go for multiple seasons, and so that was interesting because a book is a one time story, mm-hmm. and a TV show is a recurring story. So how do you find an engine that will create a kind of a dramatic question that will get answered with every episode, every season?
0: One final thing that relates, and I didn't I didn't plan this to be about you know all the great advice i'd given you in the past <laughs> but it actually does relate to a p- another piece of advice i remember giving you and i i give this one to to everybody who asks which is the best way to um dampen anxiety around a new book especially a first book is to be neck deep in a new book so that when the first one comes out, you're like, that's great. It's all gravy, but I'm actually working on this other yes. thing. My, my brain is all focused on this other thing. And I, I've i given that advice. I was given that advice by by a big name writer. I won't name because they've since become problematic. Yeah. Um, but I've taken it and I've given it out as as freely as I can. Mostly with the knowledge that people won't follow it. That most people will be like, no, I'm going to sit and watch my new book come out. And then, cause I won't have time cause there'll be calls and award juries and there'll be like flights to different <laughs> cities. I, can't, I won't have time to work on a new book. Right. So I give the advice, assuming it won't be taken for the most part. And then um, a few months ago, you posted <laughs> a photo of yourself holding a whole freaking manuscript of a new book. Yeah. A year after, less than a year after the launch of, of the previous one, which remember had that long <laughs> drawn out process before. Yeah. Well, what happened? How did you, how did you shame the, the advice giver with, uh, did you have <laughs> oh, just well, this was... burst of creativity or?
1: Well, first of all, uh, I so remember the day that you gave me that advice, um, because I, I, I had a kind of a reverb of the anxiety that I felt, um, in that first attempt to get a publisher back in 2012 or whatever approaching the publishing date of atlas count i i just felt terrified terrified um i i was afraid of being a failure that the book would flop i you know i was sort of had the like rosedale politeness thing in me from way back and thought what if i'm a flop i I was worried for the publisher that my book might be a flop like never mind me um, and so, yes, I just, and and also of course the OCD piece and knowing that, um, that I would need to talk about it out loud and what was trying to steal my, myself and summon the courage to do that and, and trust that it was going to be okay. And so, yes, I was feeling at peak, uh, terror when I called you and said, I don't know, is it just me? And you said, no, 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 Um, many writers feel like you might have an extra something in there because given the personal nature of the book, but, um, and so you gave me this advice and I thought, you know what? He's right. He's so right. And, um, I sort of remember you saying like, I'll like, let's talk next week. And you tell me if you've got some ideas, I got off the phone with you and I said, my, I'm my husband, Kirk, I'm in deep trouble. I, Nathan wants to hear from me about what, you know, what I'm uh, going to, anyway, but what I did was I went back to my kind of library of ideas. You know, the, the, the file that we all have on our computer, which is like nearly dead, but not gone ideas that we like.
0: The darlings you can't quite kill. You can't yet bring yourself to kill. You
1: cannot click any of it and drag it into the trash because it seems so good. And when you're like on a long walk through a forest, you dream about this project and. So I thought to myself I came up with a short list of 3. I think you and I talked like on a Tuesday or something and I decided that by Monday I would have a new project. And so <laughs> I went and looked I went and looked and I made a short list. I had 3 ideas. One was going to be kind of just as uh, you know very deep meaningful book to me personally and I thought I don't know if I have it in me to try and tackle such a large Thing again, like repeat, repeat what I'd done with that last count with a different subject matter that's been integral to my life. So I was like, mm, I don't know, maybe park that for the third book for now, just give myself a slight psychic break. Um, and then I had two other ideas and I decided that I would take a, a, a movie outline that I had written that has been optioned twice um, so I knew that it had some juice in it because two different producers had optioned it over the years and for uh, nothing that I could control or we could control, the options ran out and the rights reverted to me. And I thought, you know, so so one of the things that I write in film and TV are these romance movies for streaming. And so this is a romance project. And I thought, well, it's lighter fare, but it could possibly sell well And I have an outline sitting here. And the idea was that it was going to be, and still might be one day, um, a series of three movies about the same protagonist and her adventures. And so I thought I will just take the outline from the movie and make it an outline for a book and flesh it out. And uh, a writer friend of mine was attending these writer sessions in the morning uh, it's called PJ Writing. It's run by a Canadian author called Sue Reynolds, mm-hmm. and she runs writer workshops and writer retreats. And she's an editor and a writer herself. And so over COVID, she pivoted to online so that she could help her community of writers. And they were meeting every morning from seven thirty to eight thirty. Still do. Uh, and it's free. And basically, we all get on and we write in silence together like we talk about the weather for one minute and then she puts everybody into what she calls creative quiet and we all write simultaneously for an hour and I so I thought to myself okay this is going to be a way to create some accountability for myself and I'm just going to start so literally the day after I picked that movie outline as the basis of the book I signed up and I've been doing it Monday to Friday, 7.30 to 8.30, since that day in April that we talked. My book was published in June. Oh. You and I spoke in April. And yeah, and, and it's amazing what you can do in one hour of dedicated writing a day. No distractions, no internet, no email, nobody bothering you.
0: The 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 one thing I'll also point out about that, that new book, and by the way, congratulations. It's truly impressive. Oh, thank
1: I- you. It's first draft, first draft. Like oh, let's of course. not kid ourselves, you know.
0: Having said that, it's a first draft. Having said that, the photo I saw of the manuscript looked like it was bound and professionally printed. And what that speaks to is it's Devo all over again.
1: Ah, oh, that is awesome. <laughs> That's awesome.
0: What happened next is produced and edited by me. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukashevsky, who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukashevsky.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones.